The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. Disclaimer. Horror Hill is a horror anthology podcast bringing you scary stories from all corners of the internet and beyond. As such, certain stories include content that some listeners might find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. Good evening, listeners, and welcome to the final episode of Season 9 of Horror Hill. I'm Eric Peabody, your guide on this little tour of terror, and I'm happy to say that it looks like we've all survived the season. Well, now that I'm actually counting heads, maybe we did lose one or two back there on the path. Maybe in one of the dark forests or dank basements that we visited. Perhaps in a world very similar to ours, but just one dimension over... Maybe they never even made it out of Porath Farm back at the end of last season. In any case, things like this happen, and I'm sure we'll pick up some fresh blood for the next trip around. We're closing out this season with a double feature tonight. First, we'll be reading Face Down in the Grave by Thomas O. This is a fun little story about something that we all can relate to. That one person that's just an asshole to everyone. In this case, that one person is Jeremiah Judson, who manages to ruin the day of everyone he meets. He's such an absolute nightmare that everyone rejoices when he finally dies, but a small prank leading up to his funeral extends the dark cloud that Jeremiah has cast over the town. As it turns out, he's just as much of a terror dead as he was alive. After that, we'll finish up with My Job is to Watch People Die by Richard Saxon. Alex Moore is your typical everyman until one evening he receives a strange text from an unknown number. Following the text's instructions, Alex finds himself suddenly embroiled in a strange new occupation one that could shatter his sense of peace and security forever. Also, voice actress Melissa Medina will be providing her talents for three roles across tonight's stories. Please join me in welcoming her back to the show. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to help support Horror Hill and also remove these pesky ads, head to ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. You'll get instant access to hundreds of ad-free stories, and we can scale back some of our uh, less savory means of generating money for the show. By the way, you wouldn't happen to still have all of your organs, would you? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. 
It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now, from author Thomas O., I give you Face Down in the Grave. The corpse of Jeremiah Judson was buried face down in the grave because he'd been a rotten, no-good asshole, and the townspeople thought that it would be the best way to give him one last fuck you before sending him off to the ever after. It hadn't exactly been planned out beforehand, but when the town undertaker mentioned that he'd laid the body face down in the casket, no one stepped in to complain. On the contrary, the undertaker was applauded and encouraged, and when they held the viewing, most everyone who attended got a good laugh out of seeing Jeremiah's ass facing skyward. In fact, the only reason anyone attended the viewing at all was for the chuckles. Yes, it seemed that everyone had their own personal gripe about the way Jeremiah had conducted himself in life, and not a single one of them was going to step in to stop his unrighteous burial. And that's the story of how Jeremiah went into the ground looking toward hell. It wasn't too long before the townspeople realized their mistake, that burying an evil man face down was far worse than burying him face up. Bill Battlings, the undertaker who started the whole thing, was the first one to meet up with an unfortunate accident. An armored car, making its weekly drop-off at the bank, was parked along the side of the road when its doors inexplicably flew open at the same moment that Bill Battlings happened to be walking by. Several heavy bags, filled with quarters, dimes, nickels, and pennies, launched themselves from the car and struck him in the head with enough force to knock him clean out of his shoes and leave a massive dent in his skull. The bags, containing exactly $1,000 of vengeance, left Bill as a wheelchair-bound invalid who spent the rest of his days eating applesauce and reciting nursery rhymes. The irony of the situation did not escape the townspeople. You see, years earlier, Bill had naively loaned $1,000 to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, of course, had never bothered to repay the loan while he was still alive. Others in the town, specifically the ones who'd most enthusiastically encouraged Jeremiah's unholy burial, soon found themselves similarly targeted from beyond. One of these was Gail Golap, a typically kind lady who ran a cafe along the town's main thoroughfare. She'd once accused Jeremiah of stealing several hams out of her walk-in refrigerator, which flat-out ruined the Easter dinner service she was planning. Gail unfortunately met her fate about two days after Bill, when she was trampled by a stampede of angry pigs that had somehow broken free from their pen at one of the nearby farms. People couldn't agree on what was more fantastical, the fact that the pigs actually stampeded, or the fact that Gail somehow lived through it, losing only her eyesight and hearing. David Dillinger was next. He was a kindly man who'd been new in town when he hired Jeremiah to help him move furniture into his house. He permanently lost the use of his hand when Jeremiah dropped a couch on it. Jeremiah later admitted that he dropped the couch on purpose, just because he thought it would be funny. David, as would be expected, remained bitter about the whole experience and always saw fit to remind everyone that, however ridiculous it sounded, Jeremiah owed him a new hand. Well, David finally got his wish while he was walking along Main Street, and the large sign atop Edna's glove shop came loose from the roof and crashed down. The sign, upon which was painted a giant gloved hand, 
nailed David so hard that when he woke up he couldn't even remember his name, or anything else for that matter. Poor David had to go live in a sanitarium in another town. It was quickly becoming clear to everybody that Jeremiah Judson was a bigger asshole in death than he'd ever been in life. As more and more people met unfortunate fates, the townsfolk began staying in their homes, fearful of an ironic punishment that they didn't really deserve, but would somehow still get. Yes, Jeremiah was in commune with the devil, no doubt brought on by the fact that he was facing straight towards hell. Had the townsfolk just done the right thing to begin with, maybe Jeremiah would be paying for his own sins rather than having others do it for him. People argued over the blame, pointing fingers not only at the undertaker but also at those who'd encouraged him, and those who laughed at Jeremiah's butt-up corpse. The one thing they all agreed on, though, was that Jeremiah needed to be turned around and fast. Easy enough, it would seem, to flip a body. Simply dig down, pry the casket open, turn the body over, and rebury. Cal Cooper was the first to try. He marched boldly out to the cemetery, shovel in hand, and started digging. A few adventurous sightseers watched from behind trees, with a healthy dose of fear preventing them from actually helping. They witnessed Cal dig down about two feet before a red lightning bolt pierced the sky and lit him up like a supernova. When he woke up in the hospital a couple of weeks later, he was magnetized and had a difficult time letting go of metal objects. It was only then that Cal remembered that Jeremiah had once stolen electricity from him by patching into his home's electrical panel with a 50-foot extension cord so that he could watch TV in the van he was living in. Obviously, Jeremiah liked being face down in the grave, and he liked being an asshole, and it seemed there was nothing anyone could do about it except to wait for their own undeserved ironic comeuppance to be served. It became a chore for everyone to remember all the ways Jeremiah had wronged them, and then try their best to avoid scenarios where it could be used against them. The whole town slowed down and sank into a deep funk. Wake up! Francine yelled to her younger brother Fred as she burst into his bedroom. I'm sick of this shit! We've got to do something! Fred rubbed his eyes. What time is it? A quarter till six. Time to get moving. We've got a big day. Fred yawned. I thought school was cancelled. It is cancelled, but that's not what I'm talking about. Fred pulled the blanket over his head and tried to go back to sleep. Whatever it is, do it yourself. I'm sleeping. I need you. I can't flip that body all by myself. Fred shot up. You can't go out there. Jeremiah's ghost will get you. I've been thinking about this a lot, and you and I never really had a grudge against old Jeremiah, so he has nothing to use against us. Yeah, but only because we're just a couple of kids. We're not so young anymore. We're teenagers. We can do this. We can save the town. What are you going to tell Mom and Dad? That we're just on our way to go dig up some dead guy's body? We're not going to tell them anything, Francine replied. Which is why we need to leave now before they wake up. Yeah, but they'll figure out we're missing soon enough. By the time they find us, we'll be done, and we'll be heroes. Fred rubbed his eyes, still tired and not yet convinced. Francine studied him. I'll go alone if I have to, she said. Fred saw the way his sister's jaw clenched shut and knew she wasn't bluffing. No, don't go alone. I'll help. Francine waited while her brother got dressed and ate a quick bowl of cereal. On their way out, they grabbed two shovels and tossed them in the trunk of their father's 57 Suburban. Silently, they pushed the vehicle out of the garage to avoid waking their parents, only starting it once they were halfway down the street. Francine, who had recently turned 16 and had a brand new driver's license, drove the car. The day was turning out to be overcast, and a creepy gloominess stayed upon the land far past sunrise. 
They drove silently to the cemetery, with Francine seeming to have to push harder and harder on the accelerator in order to keep moving forward, as if the car itself didn't particularly want to go to the cemetery. Yet the girl's resolve never faltered, which gave her brother the silent encouragement he needed. When they arrived a little while later, the morning sunlight still hadn't broken through the clouds, and instead, an eerie red glow on the horizon gave the teens barely enough light to see. They found Jeremiah's gravesite easily enough just by looking for the crater made by Cal Cooper's lightning bolt. They parked the car so that it pointed to the grave, leaving the headlights turned on so that they would have some light to work by. They both went right to work, not wanting to spend any more time at the cemetery than necessary. Cal's lightning bolt had blasted a good deal of dirt from the site, but even with that head start, the digging was hard work. Their methodical movements were interrupted every so often by the clanking of their shovels banging together, but for the most part they worked very efficiently at digging themselves into a hole. Rains started at about the time they got waist-deep. Heavy drops smacked against their unprotected heads, causing them to periodically stop to brush away the water from their faces. Keep going, Francine said as she noticed Fred slow his pace. It's just water. She pulled out a flashlight to help them see in the deepening hole. Fred redoubled his efforts, and eventually he and his sister both felt their shovels hit the top of Jeremiah's casket. We're almost there, Francine said. We just need to widen the hole enough so that we can get the casket open. They worked to clear the dirt away from the top of the casket, with both of them drenched from the rain and their own sweat. Okay, I think we have enough room to maneuver, Fred said after a few more minutes. Let's try to open this thing. He stuck the edge of his shovel under the lid of the casket and began to pry it open. I hope the body isn't all gross-looking. Of course, it's going to be gross-looking. He's been dead for three months. But don't get scared now. We're almost there. We're going to be heroes. Francine wedged her own shovel underneath the lid and helped her brother pry it off. With their combined effort, the lid moved upward with a groan and a creak. We're doing it, she said excitedly. Soon, they had the lid pushed up far enough to get a glimpse of the shriveled, gross corpse of Jeremiah Judson. Ah, look at that, Fred said. Let's hurry up and get this over with. We just need to get this lid open a little more. He put his shovel aside and used his hands to try to push the lid all the way open, while Francine focused the beam of her flashlight on the body, still in its prone state. What's that on his neck? Fred asked. Francine moved her head forward to get a better look. It's his spiderweb tattoo. Fred looked puzzled for a moment. You mean that guy with the spiderweb tattoo on his neck was Jeremiah Judson? Yes, answered Francine. I thought Jeremiah was the guy who had a tattoo of a rat on his arm. No, responded Francine. The guy with the rat tattoo is Harry Hardwick, the town drunk. She pointed at the corpse. This here is Jeremiah Judson, the town asshole. I mean, how could you not know the difference? I don't know. I'm just a kid. Well, you're probably the only person in the whole town who can't tell them apart. This might be a problem, Fred said. What do you mean? Francine asked. It turns out I do have a grudge against this guy. He destroyed my entire collection of toy cars. What are you talking about? Remember when I was playing outside with all my cars, and then some guy drove down the street and veered onto our lawn and ran over all of them, then laughed and drove off? He owes me some cars. You told Mom and Dad that it was Harry Hardwick who did that. Yeah, that's because I thought Harry was the one with the spiderweb tattoo. As if on cue, the headlights of the car went dark, while at the same time Francine's flashlight suddenly extinguished leaving the children in near-total darkness. Only the tiniest bit of noon sunlight managed to penetrate through the gloomy storm clouds. What just happened? Fred asked. I can't see what I'm doing. Francine shook her flashlight. No luck. Give me a boost out of here. I'll go check on the headlights. 
Fred laced the fingers of his hands together and leaned down so that Francine could step into his palms and get a boost. With an oomph, he lifted his sister out of their hole. Now pull me up, he said as his sister righted herself. Hold on, she said. Let me just go check on the lights real fast. As Francine stepped away from the grave, the car's engine unexpectedly turned over, and a moment later it lurched forward with a groan as it strained against its own parking brake. Francine dove out of the way as it rolled past her toward the open grave. Seeing this, Fred decided immediately that he didn't need help to get out of the grave after all. He jumped up and grabbed onto the edge of the hole and almost managed to pull himself out right up to the point where he felt a hand wrap around his ankle and yank him back down into the hole. He's got me! He's got me! He screamed as he collapsed back down. Francine's jaw dropped as she watched the car close in on the open grave where her brother was stuck. She got back up from the ground and rushed over to the car that was still creeping its way along. Flinging the door open, she sat in the driver's seat and jammed her foot on the brake, causing the car to come to a stop just a couple of feet from the opening. Francine wiped the rain and sweat away from her face as she said a small thank you, but her gratitude was too early. The weight of the car, perched so close to the edge of the grave, caused the wet dirt to start caving in on her brother. The car, or whatever was controlling it, seemed to sense that its target was within reach. The engine revved higher, with the sound from the engine overpowering the crashing of the rain. The tires, unable to gain traction, began to spin in place, churning up mud and eating away at the edge of the hole. Francine tried to put the car into reverse, but the controls would no longer respond to her as the car scraped itself deeper into the grave, trying to reach its prey huddled at the bottom. It soon became apparent, though, that the spinning wheels could only do so much digging, and that the boy at the bottom of the semi-collapsed hole was relatively safe for the time being. The car's horn honked in frustration as the wheels flew into reverse, spinning in place for a brief moment until the tires finally found enough traction. At that point, the whole car lurched backwards to the same spot where it had been parked earlier. The engine, however, remained running as if it was just waiting for Fred to poke his head out of the grave. Francine flung the door open and carefully inched her way to the edge of the grave. Much of the surrounding mud had collapsed into the hole, and she had to be careful that she herself didn't fall in. She saw that Jeremiah's corpse had been completely covered up, while Fred was buried up to his waist in mud. Looking at her brother, Francine estimated that the car's tires must have gotten to within a couple of inches of his face. If it had managed to get any closer, the left side of Fred's head would have been ground meat. Get me out of here! He screamed. He tried lifting his legs out of the mud. I swear I can feel his hand wrapped around my ankle! Francine gave a hesitant glance back toward the idling car before lowering herself into the hole. She fished around in the dirt, looking for their two shovels and seeing them both right next to each other. Here, start digging, she said as she wrenched them loose from the mud and handed one of them to Fred. He immediately began scraping away at the mud that covered his legs, and with the help of his sister, most of the mud was soon moved aside. As soon as he could move, Fred wrenched his legs free and began to clamber up the side of the grave. No, Francine said as she pulled him back by the shoulder. We've come too far to give up. And anyway, you're sitting duck here if you go out there. The car is waiting for you. Did you hear what I said? Jeremiah's corpse grabbed my ankle and pulled me back down there. I'd rather take my chances up there with Dad's car than down here with the body. We've come too far and gone through too much to quit now. Let's keep digging. Yeah, but there's still no light, Fred said, still looking for an excuse to leave. We'll just have to do our best without it. We don't need light to know how to dig downward. She pushed her shovel into the mud, starting the process of uncovering Jeremiah's body once again. Spurred on by his sister's bravery, Fred started digging alongside her. The work was exhausting, 
but eventually the two of them nearly uncovered the casket for a second time, and as Francine heaved the last few shovels full of dirt over her shoulder, Fred stood ready in a defensive stance with his shovel held in front of him, lest Jeremiah's corpse start moving around. When the last bit of dirt was cleared away, Francine pried open the casket fully. She could just barely make out the shape of the body, which remained motionless with one of its arms positioned outward as if it was reaching for something. See, Fred said as he pointed at the corpse's outstretched arm. It did grab me. He poked at the body with a shovel, seeing if it would react, but it remained motionless. Come on, Francine said as she reached down to try and lift the body. If you don't want to help me lift, then at least use your shovel to clear some of this mud out of the casket. Fred did as he was directed as Francine reached in and pulled the body upward. With limited room to move around in the hole, she struggled to reposition the corpse so that it could be laid on its back. There's not enough room, she grunted. I hate to say this, but one of us has to get out of here. I'll go. Fred volunteered. I'm pretty sure that thing just winked at me. Francine paused for a moment to contemplate the situation. Okay, but keep an eye on Dad's car. Until I get Jeremiah put back in the casket correctly, anything can happen. She stood high and craned her neck out of the hole to survey their surroundings. Once you're out, make a dash for that tree over there. It looks sturdy. Just keep it between you and the car. Francine laced up her hands so that she could give her brother a boost out of the hole. Once you're out, just make a run for it. Don't hesitate. Fred nodded and allowed Francine to boost him up and out of the hole. He glanced cautiously at the car as he pulled himself up and then began backing away from it, keeping it in his field of view. As soon as he took his third step back, the car lurched forward. Shit! Fred screamed as he turned and started running for the tree. Maybe I should have been the one to stay in the hole. Francine, who was struggling to get the corpse in the casket correctly, heard the revving engine and peeked her head out of the hole, only to witness Fred trying his best to run toward the tree. The car spun its wheels in pursuit and most likely would have caught up to Fred if not for the soppy mud that slowed its acceleration. Oh no! Francine yelled as she released her grip on the corpse. Using every last ounce of her strength, she pulled herself from the hole and tried to chase after the car, desperately hoping that she could jump inside and stop it one more time. But it was simply too far ahead for her to even try that. However, she gave a quick sigh of relief as Fred made it successfully to the tree, diving behind it. Her delight was quick-lived, however, as she saw that the car didn't even slow down and instead plowed into the tree with one final growl from its engine. The tree proved to be weaker than Francine had anticipated and gave way to the car that had just smashed into it. With a giant groan, the tree leaned over, then slowly began toppling toward the ground. Fred scrambled to get out of its way, taking a few steps before slipping in the mud and falling face down. The tree collapsed, and its heavy branches fanned out and pinned Fred to the ground. The car's engine sputtered and then died out. Francine ran over to Fred and kneeled beside him. Are you okay? Fred opened his eyes. Am I dead? Francine ran her eyes over Fred from head to toe. Despite being pinned down, he seemed to be okay. You're not dead, she answered. Can you get out from under there? Here, let me try to move this branch off of you. Fred pushed back at the branches that were holding him down and began to extract himself from underneath the tree, but a lightning flash, which illuminated the whole cemetery, caused him to stop cold. Look, he said to his sister as he pointed back toward the grave with a shaky arm. Francine turned around to see what Fred was pointing at, only to be confronted with the sight of Jeremiah Judson standing outside of his grave, looking at the siblings. With a final push, Fred freed himself from under the last of the branches. Let's get out of here, he said. Well, we still have a chance. 
No. Francine replied as she stood up and faced toward Jeremiah, whose corpse stood silently at the edge of his grave. We need to finish what we started. We've unleashed something, and I think if we leave now, things might even get worse for this town. Look at that! There's nothing else we can do! No! I'm not going to be afraid. In fact, I may even have the advantage. What are you talking about? Francine didn't answer. She just stood in the rain, staring at Jeremiah, whose sunken yellow eyes stared right back at her from across the graveyard. She stepped boldly through the mud as the head on Jeremiah's corpse slowly turned to keep her in its sight. She kept walking until she was standing right in front of him. The corpse raised its hands, as if it were contemplating choking all the life from Francine. You have no power over me, she said boldly. Do you remember me? Jeremiah's head moved back and forth as if to say, no. I'm not surprised. Let me refresh your memory. Do you remember the day when you stole a horse and you rode it through the park and the horse got spooked and kicked over Duck Dodgeson's ice cream cart? The rain continued to fall while Jeremiah just stared back at Francine. But then you saw a little girl who'd fallen from the monkey bars in all the commotion, so you got off the horse and walked over to that little girl. Then you held out your hand and helped the little girl get back up onto her feet. Jeremiah's corpse nodded as the memory came back. Well, Jeremiah, I was that little girl. When you helped me up, that was an act of kindness. Probably the only one of your entire life. Jeremiah pointed at the girl. Yes, it was me. You helped me up from the ground when I fell. The earth under Jeremiah's feet suddenly cracked open and then gave way entirely, spilling into the grave and taking Jeremiah along with it. Francine, who jumped backwards to avoid the sliding mud, heard a thud as the body landed back inside its open casket. Once the ground stopped shifting, she took a cautious step forward and saw that the corpse of Jeremiah Judson was lying perfectly still, face up in the grave. Fred, who'd been watching from afar, stepped up to the grave in amazement. How did you do that? Are you some sort of witch or something? No. Francine replied matter-of-factly. I just figured that if people were being punished for all the bad things that Jeremiah did to them, then maybe I would be rewarded for the one nice thing he did for me. Fred smiled. It sounds like you just got really lucky. Francine shrugged. Maybe. Or it might be that I'm smart. Fred shook his head and retrieved a shovel. Okay, smarty pants. Let's finish this. Up in the sky, the rain clouds began to part as the afternoon sun began to shine down on the cemetery. Jeremiah's corpse felt the momentary pleasure of the warm sun upon its face, while at the same time, the pain of burning hellfire slowly began creeping up along its back. Seconds later, the lid was put back on the coffin, and for Jeremiah, it was dark. The two took their time to finish the job, completely filling in the grave with the dirt they'd excavated. You think he's gone? For good? Fred asked. Yep. Francine replied. The only thing we have to worry about now is trying to explain to Dad what happened to his car. Fred used his shovel to pat down the last bit of dirt over the grave. Yeah, I think we killed the car, but maybe Dad'll go easy on us because, well, <laughs> we saved the town. <laughs> Let's hope so, Francine said with a laugh. With that, the siblings began their walk back home, stopping only to admire the beautiful rainbow that had formed in the sky. You've been listening to Face Down in the Grave by Thomas O. Thomas O. has written a number of short horror stories, many of which are available in the collections Three Truths, The Seer of Possibilities, and Face Down in the Grave, all of which are available through Amazon and Velux Books. 
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now, listeners, to close out tonight's episode, I present My Job is to Watch People Die by Richard Saxon. Once your time on this earth ends, death will greet you like an old friend. Whether you embrace it with fear, hatred, or acceptance is a question that cannot be answered before you stand at its door. I can't tell you what comes next, nor can I offer you comforting thoughts about an eternal afterlife. All I can promise you is that when it happens, you won't be alone. Up until Thursday, the 6th of December, 2007, I'd never considered myself anything out of the ordinary. As a teacher at the local high school, the best I could hope for was to aid in building our future. Though not an easy job, it was one I loved. Then, on the evening of the 6th, as I returned home after grading a bunch of unsatisfying essays, I received a text message from a hidden number. It contained nothing more than a time, a place, and a vaguely familiar yet generic name. Friday, 5.34 a.m., Lock Road 4, Juliet, Florence. Any logical person would have arrived at the conclusion that the message had reached the wrong recipient. Yet, as soon as I lifted the phone and read the message, a shiver shot down my spine and something within me felt compelled beyond any reasonable explanation to go check it out. The road itself was an hour's drive out of town, situated in a desolate area, only occupied by abandoned farms and barren fields. It would have been the perfect place to lure someone out and kill them without anyone ever knowing. Despite this horrific fact, I wasn't worried. All I felt was compassion for whoever else would be there without understanding why. I couldn't accurately explain the immense feeling of purpose that had arisen within me. It was an odd mixture of unrelenting fear, sadness, and pity. It felt as if my entire life had led to that very moment and that nothing mattered more than being at that location at that time. Friday morning arrived and I'd been lying in bed without a minute of sleep in anticipation of what would happen. As 4 a.m. rolled around, I attempted to sneak my way out of bed, careful to not wake my sleeping wife, Anna. Of course, it was a futile attempt, with Anna being the lightest sleeper on the planet. She was practically able to sense my thoughts and woke up because she claimed they were too loud. Alex, what's wrong? she asked without even opening her eyes. Nothing's wrong. I just need to catch up on some papers. I lied. But why would you think something's wrong? You had a... <sighs> she mumbled, already drifting back to sleep. I let a brief smile slip and kissed her on the forehead. Everything's great, Anna. I'll see you after work, all right? She mumbled something incoherent in response, and I left the house. Secrets had never been an aspect of our five-year-long marriage, but on that particular day, I couldn't bring myself to tell her the truth. On the hour-long drive over to Lock Road, a thousand questions flew through my mind. Who had sent the message? Why did Juliet Florence sound so familiar? 
and what compelled me enough to risk following the instructions, or lack thereof, from such a cryptic message. It was a dark journey through the barely illuminated skies of dawn. Though the sun still hadn't peeked up from the horizon, it still gave the sky a deep blue hue. Once I got close to my destination, I noticed something down the road. It was a car that had flipped over, crushed under its own force as it had crashed into the ditch. I stopped my car and quickly approached the wreck, already preparing to dial 911. Help! A weak voice called from the car. In the driver's seat, pinned between the dashboard, steering wheel, and seat, sat a woman with a large piece of metal protruding from her chest. The debris had lodged itself into the seat, making it impossible to get loose, but even removing it would almost certainly have killed her, as it was the only thing keeping her from bleeding out. With shaking hands, I called for an ambulance. We were practically in the middle of nowhere, meaning it would take the ambulance almost half an hour just to arrive, which would be more time than the poor woman had left. It hurts so much, she cried weakly. A feeling of helplessness washed over me as the fact of her imminent death became abundantly clear. I could do nothing but keep her company as the life drained from her body. I didn't think it would be like this, she said. I'm so scared. You'll be all right. Help's on the way, I lied. She reached out, trying to remove the piece of metal lodged into her chest, worsening the bleeding. You have to lie still. Despite my order, she kept trying to move, mumbling incoherently to herself. I decided my best bet would be to keep her thoughts occupied on simple questions, keeping her mind working as we waited for help that couldn't possibly get there in time. What's your name? Juliet. What's yours? I'm Alex. What were you doing all the way out here? Alex. Oh no. I'm sorry. She said senselessly, barely audible before she started to lose consciousness. No, no, Juliet, stay awake. I said it loud and with purpose, awakening her for just a moment. During the last few seconds of her life, she just stared into my eyes and whispered for the second time, I'm sorry. Then she stopped breathing and I could do nothing but wait for the ambulance to arrive. I felt numb, empty after having so futilely witnessed someone's life end, suddenly and unexpectedly. The emergency services came to the scene and took her lifeless body away, while the police asked me a couple of questions to clarify what had happened. She had seemed so familiar, and she responded so oddly when I told her my name but I couldn't put my finger on it. I returned home without going to work. Anna had the day off and immediately noticed something was off about me. I broke down and told her about the accident. I told her I'd watched the poor woman die, confused and afraid, and that I could do nothing to help. What I didn't tell her was that a text message had told me to be there, not because she wouldn't believe me, but because something deep within me prevented me from uttering the words. She embraced me and tried to comfort me by saying that I did my best to help her, that at least she didn't die alone. It was a minor detail, but had I not been there, she might have just faded away, rotting for days before anyone else passed down that desolate road. And that should have been the end of it, Weeks passed, and I slowly got over the trauma. Then, as I headed to work one cold morning in January of 2008, I received another message. It contained a time, a place, and a name. Jeremy Brooks. This time, the address was a local motel, only five minutes away. I wasted no time and called an ambulance and got in my car to drive there myself. Being far closer than the hospital, I arrived before the ambulance. 
I rushed inside the apartment complex and barged in through the unlocked door. There, on the couch, sat a man I presumed to be Jeremy, pale as a sheet and bleeding profusely from large gashes on each of his forearms. It was apparent that he'd slit his own wrists and had simply sat himself down as he awaited his rapidly approaching end. He looked up at me with a fearful expression on his face. "'Who are you?' he said as he fell over, too weak from blood loss to keep himself upright. I grabbed a t-shirt off the floor and wrapped it as tightly around his arm as I could. Even with three layers, it hardly seemed to stop the bleeding." Come on, don't do this. Stay with me, I said as I looked for something better to wrap around his wound. Despite my best efforts, there was little I could do for him. Jeremy tried to sit himself up, but in his weakened state, he just kept slumping over. Then a light lit up in his eyes as he was hit with the realization that he wanted to keep living, a wish that came to him all too late. Please help me he said. I, I don't want to die. Whatever trouble had led him to this stage, whatever convinced him it would be better to leave Earth behind, he was wrong, and he knew it. But I couldn't help, and by the time the ambulance arrived, I'd watched yet another person's soul fade away. Over the next month, I would receive another seven messages all with the signature time, place, and name. Seven people destined to die, alone and in pain. I tried everything I could think of to prevent their deaths. I called the police, but they could do little without any evidence that something horrible was about to happen. Next, I attempted to reach out to the dying people, but to no avail. Not a single person accepted that I could provide them with future insight. By the time they had died and the eighth number arrived, I had long since decided to just ignore them. Why expose myself to the harsh reality of death if I could do nothing to help? Of course, that eighth message just happened to be the one time Anna was looking over some photos on my phone that she'd taken of us together. The message interrupted her session and she immediately started questioning me. Oddly enough, I'd shut off notifications. Yet the message came to taunt me at the most inopportune time. What's this? She asked. I quickly snatched the phone out of her hand, but the damage was already done. What was that message? She repeated sternly. It's nothing, honestly. It's just something from work. I lied poorly. Alex, don't bullshit me. You've been acting weird for weeks. It was true. My random disappearances, my denial that anything had been wrong, I couldn't hide it any longer. I... I... I don't... The words got stuck in my throat. A thousand thoughts ran through my mind. I knew how suspicious it all seemed. I expected accusations of cheating, a hidden drug addiction, or worse. But instead of questioning me further... She just took my hand and said, Look, whatever is going on that you're too afraid to tell me, we'll get through it together. While we stood there with tears welling up in my eyes, someone knocked on the door. It was the police. Alex Moore, one of the officers half asked, half stated, We're here regarding the death of Juliet Florence, and we need to ask you some questions. I followed them without hesitation, telling my wife to call our lawyer, but even with his help, no one could explain why I'd been at the scene of death not only for Juliet, but seven other people. They questioned me for hours, and I could provide few answers. Though it was an extremely bizarre situation, most evidence pointed towards the fact that I'd been helping the victims and not killing them. In the end, they let me go, but the investigation was pending, and at any moment, they could come for me. Once I returned back home, I'd already missed the death of the eighth victim, whoever he was. He had died during my interrogation. I... I broke down, 
and told my wife everything. If the investigation ended up with evidence going wrongfully against me, I needed her to know the truth. We sat down and I told her my story. I went over each and every death I'd witnessed and expressed the absolute hopelessness that lingered over me for each and every day. It was an unbelievable story, but she didn't stop once to question the validity of what I said. She just listened. When I finished talking, once all the facts were laid out on the table, she looked at me, her eyes glistening from tears forming. Alex, I'm so sorry, she said. That was it. No accusations, no follow-up questions regarding the validity of my story. Just pure compassion. We kept talking throughout the night, where we would go from there, and how I dealt with watching all these people die. Then, as if a light bulb had been ignited between us, Anna came up with an idea. What if you're not supposed to save them? I looked over at her, expectantly awaiting the next part of her suggestion. What do you mean? Why else would I be sent their way just moments before their deaths? What if you're just supposed to be there by their sides? Maybe all you're meant to do is give them some comforting words as they pass. I mean, you've tried everything possible to save them, but in the end, wouldn't they have just died alone if you weren't there? I let her words sink in for a moment. It was an almost ludicrous idea, yet it gave me the most profound moment of peace, more bliss and hope than I'd felt in the past two months. She was right, there was no logic behind that feeling, but I knew it had to be true. So, I patiently waited for the next message, and it wouldn't be long before it arrived. As it so happened, it would be my next-door neighbor, an elderly woman whose name I barely knew, but who I knew had become a widow last year after her husband had lost a long-winded battle with cancer. I walked over to her small house, next to mine, and knocked on the door, fully aware that she'd be dead within the next couple of hours. She was a lonely woman, eager just to have someone to talk to, and I regretted not spending more time with her before. She'd always been friendly to me, offering cake when she baked, asking about my work as I passed by in the mornings, but I'd always been too busy to appreciate it. I made no attempt at warning her about her ultimate fate. Instead, we just talked. She told me stories about her husband, and I just listened intently to each word she spoke. She smiled as the memories flowed back, ones of a life well spent, a happy one. As her time grew closer, she started feeling tired. I offered to make her some tea, and by the time I came back, she'd fallen asleep, never to wake up again. On her face, I could see an expression of peace, and I knew she hadn't been afraid. She'd been ready and I hoped whatever afterlife existed would reunite her with her husband. From then, my curse became more of an ally. It was a job I had to do, to watch people in their last moments and comfort them as they left our world. I did my due diligence and alerted the authorities after each event, but it was nothing more than an anonymous tip, enough to lead them to the scene, but not enough to add suspicion. I simply held their hands or gave them a few words of comfort. I tried getting close to them before their last hour, be it just to strike up a friendly conversation or to buy them a drink at the local pub. Most left with a look of acceptance, as if they trusted my assurances that everything would be fine. Years went by a whole decade of helping people pass peacefully to the other side. The power that I'd called a curse so long ago had become a welcome gift. Then, in the late days of last year, as Christmas rolled around once again, Anna and I were wrapping presents for the holiday festivities and family dinners. I'd gone almost a month without receiving another name, 
But that would end quickly when I received another message that shattered my life with these simple words. Saturday, December 7th, 11.43 p.m. Anna Moore. I froze in place and just stared at the name highlighted on my phone. Anna quickly noticed my absence from rapping and jolted me back to attention. You got another name? She asked. I nodded, not needing to speak another word for her to understand. The look of horror on my face said it all. Oh, how long do I have? She simply asked. Her normally cheerful voice turned dull and empty. We need to go to the hospital, I demanded, knowing fully well that preventing the deaths was an impossible feat. Alex, don't... She said before I cut her off. We can stop this. It doesn't have to happen. We argued for a bit, and she seemed oddly calm throughout the discussion. In the end, she agreed to get a checkup, if only to calm me down. Of course, with a woman that appeared perfectly healthy, without as much as a cough, the doctors could only run her through the basic tests. To look for anything substantial was a futile task, as most tests would take weeks to return, which was time we didn't have. In the end, we were sent home without a single answer. What if we leave? What if we just get out of town for a few days? I suggested. Have any of the hundred people survived? She asked. She already knew the answer. I didn't have to say it out loud. Without a place listed in the message, it became apparent that she'd meet her fate wherever she was, so we decided to make the best of what little time we had left. In the following days, Anna stayed brave, putting up a beautiful facade of acceptance and joy. We reminisced about times long since past, looked over photos, and held each other for hours. At night, I could hear her cry in the living room, terrified not of what was to come, but of what she'd leave behind. I did my best to comfort her, but there was something hidden under the layers of love and support. Resentment. I wish you'd never told me, she said. You should have just let me meet my death ignorant, like everyone else. And she was right. I'd taken away one of the most beautiful things about life, its uncertainty. The idea of our temporary fleeting presence here on Earth, the fact that any moment might be our last, the thing that makes us so tragically wonderful, and I'd taken it away. Despite that, she never stopped loving me, and on her final day she made me promise to never give up. There would be people that needed me after her demise. They would be alone at the final step in their lives, and I couldn't let them down. Once her time came, it was nearing midnight. We'd both agreed not to mention her rapidly approaching death. She asked if we could go outside, to just look at the night sky one last time, to kiss under the moonlight like we did on our first day. But it wasn't meant to be. No sooner had she stood up than she just collapsed to the floor with no warning. According to the doctors, my wife had suffered from a deep vein thrombosis, Basically, a clot had formed in her leg to subsequently break off, traveling all the way up to her lungs, where it caused a pulmonary embolism. It killed her within seconds. The love of my life had died, yet the names never stopped coming. I was depressed, broken, and without the will to follow orders. I wanted to ignore the names but I'd made a promise to keep going. For the next two months, I chased down dying names as I got them. Five victims that didn't have to suffer alone. 
I approached them, made them feel comfortable, and held their hands as they passed. But each name crossed off my list took away chunks of my own soul. Without Anna to support me, I had no energy to keep going. I just had to wait until whoever ruled my life finally released me from my curse. So I did, up until last night, when I received another message, one that differed from the rest. This time, there were no names, no places, nor a time. I was faced with nothing more than an innocuous question. Are you done? My mind raced. It was such a simple but overwhelming question. What would happen if I said yes? Would I finally be free? I thought long and hard before deciding that I'd fulfilled my duty, that my time had come to let go and let life happen the way it was meant to. Yes, I typed into the phone. Within a second, I got a response. Who will be next? Then it clicked, as if the past decade of my life suddenly made sense, or at least partially. Juliet, my first job, had not only been a random death. She'd chosen me as a successor, plunging me into a life she herself had lived. Why she had chosen me remained a mystery. Maybe we knew each other long ago. Met once and the name stuck, or maybe she picked me from a dusty phone book in her attic. But, just like her, I'd been faced with the same dilemma. I thought about the implications of choosing another person to suffer the same fate as myself, but before I could consider a name, another message popped up. Sunday, 8.49 p.m., Hollow Street 7. Alex Moore. By quitting my job, I've effectively ended my own life. It's not a fate I'm trying to escape, and I've already come to terms that I don't have much time left. Though I still have a few days to sort out my business, there's still one question that remains. Who's next? You've just heard My Job is to Watch People Die by Richard Saxon. Richard Saxon is a horror author that's relatively new to Horror Hill. His story, I Woke Up During Surgery, They Weren't Trying to Save Me, was featured on last week's episode, and you can find more of his work at Velux Books as well as through Reddit at www.reddit.com slash user slash Richard Saxon. Well, folks, that wraps things up for Season 9 of Horror Hill. Don't worry, though, I'm not going anywhere, and I'll have more chilling tales to share with you starting next week with Season 10. In the meantime, I'd like to thank all of you for coming on this long, strange trip with me. The world is truly a remarkable place, and it's extra fun to get to poke into some of its darker corners with all of you. Again, please join me in thanking Melissa Medina for her lovely character work on tonight's episode. I'd also like to thank Thomas O., Richard Saxon, and Velux Books for fleshing out the lineup tonight. By the way, you can find copies of tonight's stories and many others over at www.veluxbooks.com. That's all for now, listeners, but I'll see you next week to crack open the new season. Until then... Stay spooky. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Tonight's episode was hosted and narrated by yours truly, Eric Peabody. Original music provided by Eric Peabody and Nikki McSorley. Finalization by Eric Peabody and Craig Groshek. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? 
Email it to us at natalie at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your work considered for future production. Seeing as how we're all living in a technological nightmare of our own devising, I'll ask you to follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on social media and upvote, subscribe, and hit the bell notification icon if you're listening to this on YouTube. Not only will you have appeased the dark gods of cyberspace, but you'll be kept in the loop as we prepare more terrifying content. If you'd like access to uninterrupted horror, free of ads and these annoying bookend segments, might I recommend becoming a patron? You'll get access to hundreds of episodes of this show, as well as everything from the other programs in the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights cabal. That means all of Otis Jiry's scary stories told in the dark, Drew Blood's dark tales, Paul J. McSorley's fear from the heartland, and more. It's a veritable smorgasbord of horrific delights. As for me personally, I'm on most social media as Viking Guitar or Viking Guitar Productions. I'm always on the lookout for new stories to narrate and new music projects to mix or master. If that's of interest to you, feel free to reach out and we can talk turkey. Also, I will be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.